The following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. Well, go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're kicking off a new series this morning called Rooted, and we're going to be looking at the book of Galatians. And we'll get into some context here in a second, but really this morning, I want to set the stage on kind of the, the hows, the whys, the whens, all the stuff that we need to understand before kicking off a series focused on one of Paul's letters in the New Testament. So go ahead and begin to open up to Galatians 1.1. We'll get there in just a second. And there's a guy named C.S. Lewis, who many of you are familiar with. He was an author. He was a theologian. He wrote books like The Screwtape Letters. He wrote Mere Christianity. Uh, most people probably recognize him for the work of Chronicles of Narnia, right? The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So there's a story about C.S. Lewis that's told that he was at this conference. He was attending this conference where these uh, theologians and philosophers were talking about comparative world religions. And at, at some point, the conference speakers were off in the side room and they were trying to figure out what is it exactly that makes Christianity unique, that makes Christianity uh, set apart from all other world religions. And someone spoke up and said, well, well maybe it's the resurrection. And someone said, well, well, no, because there's other religions that believe that someone rose from the dead. And someone else said, well, well, maybe it's the incarnation. And someone else said, no, because there's other people, other religions that believe that their God became a man. And so C.S. Lewis apparently walks in sometime around this point. Here's the conversation that they're having, that they're trying to figure out what makes Christianity unique. And C.S. Lewis speaks up and he says, well, it's easy. It's simple. It's, it's grace. It's grace. That's what makes Christianity unique. It's the unmerited favor of God toward undeserving sinners. The grace of God makes Christianity unique. And of course, he's right, because if you, if you look at it, every other world religion has some way that you have to earn your way into favor with God. Not, not any other religion is based on this concept, this idea of grace. So if you're a Buddhist, you have the eightfold path, and you need to follow this in order to achieve what you need to achieve. If you're a Hindu, then there's karma, right? What, what goes around comes around. And there's, there's no grace whatsoever in karma. If you're a Jew, then you follow the Torah. If you're a Muslim, there's the five pillars of Islam. And if you do these things, do these things the right way, then, then somehow you will earn enough godliness to achieve divine favor from God. Only Christianity says it's, it's by grace. And I don't think any, any human would come up with the concept of grace. No one would even consider that the people that are rebelling against God, the people that are receiving unmerited favor, these undeserving sinners toward a God who is showing them the favor, no one would think that's even a possibility. No one would ever think of grace. But have you ever have you thought about maybe what comes before grace? And I'm a little worried, worrisome about saying this the wrong way. Um, it's a little bit of a trick question, and I don't want you to think that there's something that we need to, uh, need to do to receive grace, to achieve grace, because then it's not grace, right? 
Uh, but something that I, I do think that needs to come before grace is this understanding, right? It's this epiphany. It's this awakening. It's this realizing that there is something called grace and then wanting it for yourself. You have to want grace in order to receive grace. So Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 15. Many of you are familiar with the story of the prodigal son. You've heard that before. And so Jesus tells a story, and, and maybe it's, it's more appropriately named the story of the prodigal sons because there's two sons involved, plural, and everyone thinks that the one prodigal son is the younger son, right, who, who runs away from home, and he basically says, Father, I wish you were dead. Sell whatever you need to to give me my inheritance right now. I'm going to go live the life that I've always wanted to live. I'm going to live it up like Andrew in Vegas with no authority, with no, with no reverence for you, no respect for you. And he, he goes on and he does this. He, he lives, Andrew's a good person. We all love Andrew. He didn't do anything bad, just throwing that out there. So this younger son, he goes on and he does this. He, he lives this prodigal life, an excessive lifestyle, and he spends everything, every penny that his father has given him, and he ends up in this place, lowest of lows. He has absolutely nothing left. It says that he's eating the leftover scraps that pigs don't even want to eat. I mean, that's how bad this dude's life has gotten. But then the Bible says he comes to himself. He awakens to this reality. He, he reaches this point, this understanding that he had it way better back at home in the first place. And so he begins to think. He begins to reason in his mind. And here again is why no human would ever think of this concept of grace. He began to think of how can I earn my way back to have the ability to go back home. So he thinks of this prepared speech. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell my father, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I'm going to earn my way back into your good graces. And so we know the story. He returns home, and it says his father is waiting to greet him. His father is actually searching for him. I mean, this is an astonishing view of a, an, an ancient Near Eastern father who never would have done something like this for his son that has ran away. And his father runs to greet his son. And his father, or the son begins to launch into this prepared speech and say, here are the things, this is what I'm going to do to earn my way back into your good graces. And the father basically shuts him down. He says, no, no, just stop. And he calls out to his servants. And he says, go kill a fatted calf. Go get the finest robe. Go get a golden ring. Go get some Air Jordans and put some shoes on his feet. Go do these things. We're going to throw a party like it's 1999 because my son who was lost has now returned home. The one who has been lost has now been found. And that's this idea of grace. And then there's the older son in the story, this older son who sees what's going, going on, and he says, Dad, you've got to be kidding me. I mean... This is unbelievable, right? You killed a fatted calf for him? Why, he's been out living it up, doing all these things. I've been here working hard for you. I've been working the field. I've been doing all these things. Everything that you've asked of me to do, I have done, and I've done it to the best of my ability. And you've never, you've never killed a fatted calf for me. You've never thrown a party like this for me. And the father says, son, you, you don't... You don't get it. You don't understand. Everything that I have is already yours. 
Everything here, everything that I own is already yours. You could kill a fatted calf right now if you wanted to. You never had to work your way back into my favor. You never had to work your way into my favor to begin with in the first place. You see, this, this story is about two very opposite ends of the spectrum people. This is a story about a lawless one, the younger son, and a legalist one, the older son. This is a story about a moralist and a relativist. This is a story about two brothers who both equally, greatly need to be awakened to the understanding of grace. And they don't get it. They don't get it. What needs to be happening, what needs to happen for you and I as well, is we need to be awakened to the understanding of grace, the truth of grace. And so that's what we're going to be doing throughout the series called Rooted, focused on the, the book of Galatians. And we're calling it Rooted because it's about rooting our lives in Christ, rooting our lives in the gospel, rooting our lives in the truth, into Christ-centered living, which is what Galatians is really all about. It's this, it's this constant illumination of what the gospel is and this grace that God gives freely to each of us, that this grace is for, it's for all people. It's for the legalists. It's for the lawless. It's for anyone who says, I've blown it. It's for anyone who says, I don't even really think I need it, but it is grace to you. God wants to reveal that grace to us throughout this series, and he wants you to be rooted in it. So that's kind of my pitch, all right? So we're going to go ahead and start in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll go up through verse 5 this morning. And I'll read through the whole thing. We'll kind of walk our way back through it a little bit line by line. Here we go. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So often we read these introductions, right, in Paul's letters, or these greetings, and we think, you know, actually, where Galatians starts is verse 6. This is, just, this is just the greeting. We usually fly, right? You're like me, you kind of fly through this. So I've appropriately named this talk this morning more than a greeting, mostly because I heard Boston's more than a feeling on the radio, and I started singing this whole entire week, more than a greeting. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're a better Christian than I, so that's all right. So I want you to see, and I, I call this more than a greeting, I want you to see that Every word here that Paul writes matters. Every word in Scripture matters. It's important. It's important. So let's start with a little bit of an introduction, talk about who is Paul. Pastor John gave some good background last week. I'm going to add to that this week in talking about Paul. A lot of us know that Paul is this monumental figure in the New Testament, a majority of the New Testament is actually written by Paul, if you look at it in terms of volume of the New Testament. Paul is a guy who used to be named Saul, and we see that Jesus saves Saul in Acts chapter 9 and changes his name to Paul. Paul, the word Paul, literally means little or small. Paul, small, that's how I think of it. And in some ways, it sort of reflects what Paul thinks about himself, right? 
he would say of himself, I'm just kind of an insignificant nobody. I'm not really much of a person. I don't really have a lot to offer. And some of the letters Paul writes, he refers to himself as the least of the apostles. He calls himself the, the worst of sinners. And this is kind of Paul's self-identification. He's small, little, insignificant. In fact, the second century writer claims to have known what Paul looks like, and they wrote this. Paul was a man of small stature with a bald head and crooked legs and a good state of body with eyebrows meeting and nose somewhat hooked, full of friendliness. For now, he appeared like a man and he had a face of an angel. I mean, here's a short, good-statured, bow-legged, bald, unibrowed dude, right? <laughs> so apparently, like, he wasn't much to look at. Like, his identity obviously wasn't in... I, I chose to refrain from comparing it to someone in our congregation. So I didn't have anyone in mind. I just wanted to throw that in there. But so Paul's not much to look at, but, but here lies the entirety of the point. Paul's stature didn't come from his charisma or his physical appearance. But what we do know about Paul is here's a guy that understood grace. Here's a guy who understood grace because Paul is like the older son who stayed at home and did everything right, did everything the right way. See, Paul was a, a zealous Jew. He performed what the law required of him. He did everything that he was supposed to do. And as a zealous Jew, he hated Christianity. Christianity to him was something that was detestable. It was something that, that God didn't want. And so during the early stages of this Christianity movement called the way in his time, he literally would imprison Christians. This is what he did. He thought, I'm actually pleasing God by doing this. God is pleased by me doing this persecution to Christians. In fact, I believe Paul, Paul would say, I was such a good person, I had every right to believe that by doing these things, I was putting myself into good graces with God. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Paul writes that he was circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. He'd say, it's unbelievable, right? I did everything right. I did everything the right way. And Paul says, man, I did this with such abandonment, man. I was, I was passionate about doing these things. I thought I loved God, and I was performing how God would want me to perform. I thought I was doing what God wanted me to do. He writes there in verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. If you read in Acts chapter 7 and 8, it kind of reaches an apex where Paul is going around literally pulling Christians out of their household and throwing them into prison, ravaging the church. In Acts chapter 7, it says that Paul actually stood there and held the robes of these other Middle Eastern men as they were stoning Stephen to death because they couldn't get enough torque and follow through on their body with their robes on. They literally had to take off their robes. Paul held those robes as they threw these stones at Stephen's head to murder him. Paul was there. He was there holding the robes. I mean, this is the guy that we're talking about. This is the dude. But it says, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love for Paul, he comes to Paul and says, Paul, you're going to be mine. I'm going to set you apart for very important work. 
I'm going to use you, Paul. I'm going to choose you to be my choice servant. And in Acts chapter 9, this light, Jesus appears to Paul and knocks him off his horse. He's on this road to Damascus, and, and, and Paul sees Jesus. He sees him as the risen Lord, and Jesus calls to Paul, and he says, Paul, you're going to be one of mine. You're going to be my apostle, and I'm going to set you apart, and you're going to begin to do this work that I want you to do. And fast forward into Acts chapter 13. All these apostles are having this prayer meeting, and the Holy Spirit enters in. The Holy Spirit says, set Paul and Barnabas apart for the work that I've called them. And this starts Paul off on his missionary journeys, his missionary journeys. And, and Paul would go through about three circles of this missionary journey where they would leave Israel, circle around Gr Greece and Turkey, back down through Syria and Lebanon and back to Israel. I'm talking about modern day countries here. And he'd go through the circle three times and every time he would enter a new city, his first order of business was to start a church. He'd raise up new believers, they would believe in the gospel, he'd start a new church, and then he would continue on to a new city. I mean, this is God's method for expanding the influence of the gospel in our world is through the local church. And so that's what Paul does. Paul did those things. And then what would happen is, as he's continuing on on these journeys, he would hear reports, he would hear updates, and he would write back to those cities and send them encouragement, and he'd write them letters. And so he wrote letters to the church in Corinth. This is a city, Corinth, we have First and Second Corinthians. He wrote a letter to the church in Rome, though he hadn't been to Rome yet, he had been near in that area. He wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. He wrote a letter to the church in Colossae. All these different letters that you find in your New Testament when you open it up, these are places and regions where Paul traveled and he wrote letters to these regions. And so it says that Paul wrote this letter to the churches at Galatia. So what's Galatia? Well, Galatia isn't a city. Galatia is actually a region. It's a region. It'd be like Paul writing a letter saying, Paul to the churches in western Washington. It would be a region that everyone was able, easily able to understand. We understand what western Washington is. Canada to Oregon, ocean to mountain. It makes sense to us. So this is, Galatia is a, is a region that people in that time would recognize and understand. And if you actually read in Acts chapter 13 and 14, you could read about Paul traveling through this area of Galatia, which is kind of right dead center middle of Turkey. And he writes to them, and he, throughout his letters, he would write to them and ask what's going on. He'd say, I've heard these things, or I want to report back to you about these things, or I want to encourage you. And so that's what he's doing here in the book of Galatians. And what happens is every, every one of the letters that Paul writes follows a certain pattern. They're all kind of similar in that way, that there's always this greeting that we're looking at today, this greeting, and then he gets into the body of the text, the really meat of the letter but again, here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to think that this is just greeting. This is all just, hey, what's up? It's not an important thing. And think that it starts in verse 6. Because here's what Paul is going to do. He's going to start by giving his credentials as to why he can even write this letter, as to why we should listen to this letter. And then he's going to summarize his entire message of the book of Galatians right here in these five verses. These are the two themes that will resurface in the book of Galatians, the letter to Galatia, over and over and over, which is why I say don't just skip through. It's more than a greeting. <laughs> Paul is setting the stage for what's about to come. So why, why does Paul 
write this letter. Why does he write this letter? Well, because what has happened is Paul has already traveled to this Galatian region. He has preached the gospel and people have come to faith. He talks about it's being justified through faith alone, that it's not by works of righteousness. It's not about anything that you do. It's about believing on Jesus Christ and Christ alone, what he's already done for you and accomplished through his death and resurrection, that you can't earn your way into salvation. You can't earn your way into this. And they have believed that. And so Paul continues on on his missionary journey. But then what happens is this other group of individuals come in after Paul. The New Testament calls them the Judaizers, or Paul refers to them as the circumcision party. And what they do is they come in after Paul and they say, okay, well, Paul got it half right. Paul was halfway correct. Yeah, you need Jesus, but in order to truly become these covenant people, in order to complete your salvation, you need Jesus, but you also need the Old Testament law. Specifically, you men need to become circumcised. Can you imagine that? That'd be a bummer. But they say, they say you go through this ritual in order for God to recognize you and show you favor for your salvation to be complete. Now, Paul often st starts off many of his letters with very encouraging words, but what we're going to see here is that Paul will launch right in because this is a church that's about to walk off the edge into heresy. This is a group of people that are about to abandon the gospel because they're believing it's Jesus plus something equals salvation. And Paul's going to say, no, 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 time and again, no, 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 it's Jesus plus nothing. It's Christ and it's Christ alone. So now let's look at Paul's credentials. He starts off and says, Paul, an apostle. So now we know who Paul is. We spent about 10 minutes on that. Now we know who Paul is. He calls himself an apostle, and he says, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So what's going on here? I mean, Paul immediately identifies himself as an apostle. An apostle simply means one who is sent. So there's a generic form of the word apostle, which means just I was sent by someone. But then there's also the use of apostle here that Paul's using, referring to an office. So there's specifically an office within Jesus' church, within the church, that's called an apostle. And let me say this, that there are, there are no modern day Apostles. This is a thing of the past that has come and gone because these people, these apostles, have actually seen the risen Christ and have actually been taught personally by Christ. No one today can say that. And if they do, look out. Look out. So here Paul says, I'm an apostle, and he's not just using the generic sense that I was sent. He's telling that his apostleship didn't come from or through men. In other words, I didn't get this from Paul, or I didn't get this from John, I didn't get this from James, I didn't get this from Peter, I got it straight from Christ himself, from God the Father. My apostleship, Paul would say, is of divine origin, it came directly from Jesus. So why did Paul make such a big deal about this? Is he's like saying, hey, look at me, look how cool I am, I got like the club card, I got the badge, Everyone look at me. Everyone ought to listen to what I have to say because I'm this awesome apostle and you're not. Is that, is that what, what's going on? Let me say, Paul didn't care about achievements. 
In Philippians 3 that we looked at a little bit earlier where he says he was circumcised on the eighth day, he said he has all these reasons to boast in his flesh. But at the end, he says in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. I count them as rubbish, which is a very polite way to translate it, and we won't translate it actually in service this morning, but he calls it poop. It was, not, it was dung. It was gross. It was nothing. It was rubbish. Paul says, I don't care about achievements. I don't care about this title. What's not at stake here is my resume. What's at stake here is the gospel of Jesus. And here's why. Here's why. Because if, if I'm just a man and I got this message from other men, then I'm just preaching someone else's opinion. And if it's opinion, you have the right to agree with me or disagree with me. You could say, he said this, she said this, I like what they said better, or maybe they have a better argument than me. But Paul's saying, no, no, it's none of that. He doesn't allow for that. And unfortunately, some people will treat Paul's words like this today. There are theology teachers and some pastors that will say, well, Paul didn't quite get it right here, or or something like, we don't really agree with Paul on this issue. But let me just say this. You, you don't do that. Every word of God, every part of your scripture, it says is breathed out by God. Amen. In other words, these aren't Paul words. These are God's words. We don't look at scripture and say, I believe Jesus' words more than I believe Paul's words. Do you understand that? Scripture is the same. Jesus' words aren't just more, aren't more authoritative because they're in red, and Paul's words aren't in red. God superintended the process to give us Scripture. It was poured out by God, and God was part of that process. So when we read and hear what Paul is saying, he is speaking directly the words that were told to him by God through the Holy Spirit. Listen, everyone, everyone in this room has some ultimate authority in their life that you, you bow to. You do. Everyone has it. You either bow to the culture or you bow to science or you bow to your subjective feelings at the time or you bow to what you ate last night or you bow to scripture. Maybe there's something I haven't mentioned that we also bow to. And what I mean by that is when a contradiction in our life arises between culture and scripture, between our feelings and scripture, or something like this, then you filter one through the other depending on which one is the ultimate authority in your life, your ultimate authority. If scripture is, in fact, the ultimate authority, then I don't have the right to say I don't agree with Paul because it's God's word. So I filter everything through Scripture, and if culture doesn't agree with Scripture, then Scripture wins. Amen. And Paul's saying, I didn't make this up. I didn't anoint myself apostle. I didn't create this authority for me that this came from God. Listen to what I have to say, because if you don't, then heaven and hell are at stake. This isn't just something that you get the opportunity to go, yeah, well, this is, this is good, nice teaching. That's not what Paul's after. Paul's not after nice teaching. He's after eternal souls. 
And then notice what he says. He says, Paul and apostle, not from men or through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Now, why does he add that? If you read a lot of the New Testament, maybe you get to these parts of Scripture and you just kind of skip over it. It's like a record on skip. People don't have CDs anymore. What skips? You know, something that skips. Something like that. Goes back and it's white noise or something. You just kind of skip past this. We just kind of blow right past this. But, but hear this. This is so foundational. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, then everything that Paul says about the gospel isn't true. And so right from the outset, Paul is so fixed on us being rooted in the gospel, rooted in truth, rooted in Christ, that he says, I want you to know right up front that if Christ is not raised, then you're dead in your sins. If Christ is not raised, then the gospel isn't true. And notice that he says that God raised him from the dead. In other words, God was part of this process. Hey, Judaizers, the same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament, and this God raised Jesus from the dead. Together they did this. This is the nature of God. Because if Christ is not raised, there is no grace, right? He's just a, a dead prophet or a dead philosopher. If Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, you don't have to believe a single word of Scripture. But if he was, then you have to believe all of it, every word of it. Because Jesus believed every word of it. Jesus made all kind of claims and promises in Scripture, and it's, it's the vindication of Jesus Christ that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So these are Paul's credentials. It's really important that we understand that. Now I'm getting like real deep in, in background story, but this is going to be a great platform to, to launch the rest of the series off of. The second thing he's going to do is he's going to tell us, our, tell us his gospel, tell us the message. And he summarizes it right in the beginning of verse 3. And he says, grace to you and peace. It's grace first and then peace. A lot of Paul's letters will start in this way, grace and peace to you from the Lord our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. We see that in Romans and Ephesians and Philippians, Colossians, grace to you, peace to you. And it's very easy, again, to kind of fly through this, but this is the root of the gospel. It's right there in those words, grace to you and then peace. In other words, grace is the source Grace is the source, and then peace is the result. Great, grace is the position of the believer that is rooted in Christ, standing in Christ, standing in God's grace, and the result of that is peace in our life. Peace is the practical part. We will not understand, we will not know this peace that surpasses all understanding, this peace that guards your heart and mind in Christ Jesus apart from the grace of God. You don't earn it. You don't deserve peace. It's a gift of God that he gives to those who are awakened in this understanding of his grace. Where does it come from? Well, Paul writes, grace and to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Right there. And this is, this is really an incredibly high view of Scripture that Paul is saying that even as I write this letter to you, 
as I write this with my hand, as I pen this letter out to you, grace is available to you. Grace to you as you read this. Paul is saying, I'm not writing a novel. I'm not just writing some ordinary letter. This is the active, living word of God that I'm writing to you. And grace and peace are coming to you. The source of the gospel, the source that's behind the scripture as you open it up and read it, is God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same promise to us today as we read, as we go to our words, as we go to the scripture. The promise of, to us that when we open the scripture is that it is grace flowing to you and peace will result in you as you meditate and believe on what you read, on what you're reading. And so the first word, first word that, that Paul thinks that these Galatians that are on the edge of heresy need to hear, first thing he says to them is not, you idiots, that's what I would say, and Paul will say eventually, we'll get to that, but the first word that he says to them is grace. I mean, what, what do you need to hear when you've blown it in your life? What do you need to hear when you've messed up remarkably bad? What do you need to hear when you can't see your way through certain circumstances and situations in your life? What do you need to hear? What do you need to know? What do you need to believe again and again and again in your life? It's, it's grace, grace, grace. Why is there this, this friction in my soul? Why can't I ex- seem to experience God's peace in my life? Well, it's because you haven't returned to and rooted your life in God's grace. Grace isn't an idea, it's not a theory, it's not something just floating around, it's not a concept. Grace is a person. The Apostle John wrote that Jesus was the embodiment of grace and truth. It was initiated by God, it was incarnated through Jesus Christ. And so when I'm receiving grace, when I'm receiving peace, I'm not receiving an idea, I'm receiving the Spirit of God, I'm receiving Jesus Christ in my life. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. What's the nature of the gospel? The nature of the gospel is that Christ died for our sins. Christ gave himself up willingly, listen, for our sin. Every word here in this greeting matters. Don't just flip past this. Paul is saying something here that we are all sinners, and even though we are sinners, Christ still died for our sins. And everyone is included in this. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Everyone's a sinner. We've rebelled against God. We've done things that he doesn't want us to do. We do things that we shouldn't do. We don't do things that we should do. We are sinners by nature. We are sinners by choice. And we are sinners each and every day of our life. But Paul's also telling you that you, you can't save yourself. You can't deliver yourself from sin. Someone else had to die, and that someone else was Jesus Christ. You'll never be good enough. You can't tip the scales into your favor because there are no scales. God isn't looking at each of us and out, seeing if you outweigh the good from the bad. Because if he was, then it wouldn't be grace, would it? It'd be, it'd be something else. It'd be works. Which is why the gospel can be considered so offensive, because he's kind of pointing the finger at your face, pounding it on your chest and saying, this is you. This is you here. You are a sinner. You are imperfect. And some people say, you don't know me. 
You know, I'm a good person. I'm sure in, in your mind you're a great person. You're an awesome person. You're wonderful. But the Bible says no one is good. God says no one is good, not even one. That's God's definition of good. So this is why the gospel could be considered offensive. And yes, there, yet there's one word here that stands out to me that makes it so remarkable and so important. Who gave himself for our sins. Christ died for everyone. No matter where you're at in life, Christ died for you. This is the root of the gospel. This is what we need to have understanding and awakening to. And this is what we need to be rooted in day in and day out. Lastly, let's discuss the intention of the gospel. Paul says, Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. So what did Jesus come to do? Well, he didn't come just to be recognized as a great teacher. As a great teacher. Jesus didn't come so people would say, wow, that guy can really teach. Did he teach? Yes. But he didn't come to people who were dead and dying in their sin and their despair and said, let me lecture you. He came to them and he said, I'm going to deliver you, I'm going to rescue you, I'm going to pull you out of this. As Paul said, and we looked at uh, about a month ago when we did our uh, reset button series, verse talk, the reset button, we look at a uh, verse in Colossians where Paul wrote that he has delivered you from the dominion of darkness and transferred you in the kingdom of his beloved son. And this is the reality for you if you're a Christian right now. This is your reality, that you are no longer a part of this world. He didn't say, I'm going to take you out of this world, remove you from the world as if we're going to escape the world and live in our own bubble. I thought of the movie The Village. Have you seen that? It's kind of trippy. He uh, didn't say, you're going to be Amish and you're going to live a separate life away from the world. He says, I'm going to deliver you from this present evil age because the age that we live in it's evil. You guys get that? Age that we live in is evil. Uh, in the book of 1 John, the Apostle John says that the whole world lies within the power of the evil one. I mean, just, just think how huge that is. All these areas of our life, art and entertainment, politics, finance, industry, all of this lies within the power of the evil one. And Jesus comes in and he says, I'm going to deliver you out of that but then I'm going to send you back into it. I'm going to send you back into these areas, these, these spheres of influence, art, entertainment, politics, finance, industry, and you're going to be my hands, you're going to be my feet, you're going to be able to redeem and restore, you're going to be able to bring the gospel back into these areas because I've delivered you out of those things. I don't have to pursue any longer what the world pursues. I don't have to have the same values as the world does. I don't have to make the culture my authority for which I view everything. I now have scripture. I belong to a different kingdom. I'm a citizen of someplace else. And look at this. It's all according to the will of our God and Father. All according to the will of our God and Father. So make no mistake. God isn't the old, angry, curmudgeon God of the Old Testament. And Jesus isn't the nice, happy, hippie of the New Testament. <laughs> You've got Jesus Christ and God together. They're members of the same Godhead, and this is all according to God's will. 
the punishment of Christ was according to the will of God. It is the will of God that he be gracious to you. It is the will of God that Jesus came, lived this perfect life, and would give himself up for you so that you would know grace, so you would see a representation of someone who lived the perfect example to us so that your sins could be taken care of. It was all according to the will of God. Jesus Christ and God the Father cooperating together to redeem you and to save you. So no wonder Paul ends this greeting. Paul ends it by saying, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And this is the end of the gospel. This is the end of the gospel. The eternal glory of God. That's what God's after. Everything he's done, everything he did, everything he's doing now and will do in the future it's all for his glory. Paul says, I don't need to boast in myself. It's not about me. It's everything that's God, that God is doing. It's all for him. It's all to him. And it's all for his glory. His end game is to make of me a worshiper. Why does God extend grace to me? Why does God bring peace to me? Why does God send Jesus to give himself up for me? Well, in some ways we could say it's because it's God drawing us back to become worshipers, drawing us back to become the people, the men and women that he's created us to be. God is saying, I want to bring each of you to a place where you could be rooted in me, rooted in my grace and have my peace available to you. And Paul ends with this little word, amen. You know what amen means? You've heard it before. Why do we say amen, right? It means I agree. I agree or I believe that. I believe the way into this reality that Paul is talking about, into the grace of God, to know the peace of God, the effects of what Jesus accomplished through death and resurrection on the cross, is simply by saying, I agree. I believe that. I believe that. That's it. That's what's left for you and I today. Have you agreed? And if you have, if you have agreed, you can return to this truth again and again and again in your life. Grace to you and peace through God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much this morning for that grace that you freely give to us. I know that there's times in my life where I relate to the younger son and feel I have to work my way back and right my wrongs and do all these things or the older son and say I've done all these things for you God look at me but you say no neither my grace is enough it's because of my love for you that I sent Jesus to die for you Lord I just thank you for this divine plan this divine love that you have extended to each of us this morning, Lord. And I pray that you would help us to stand foundationally, stand rooted in that grace, rooted in your gospel, rooted in your truth, Father, and be people of grace and people of peace. May it abound from Canyon Ridge Church and the people here, Lord. We love you and we thank you. In your name we pray, amen.